What happened to music that meant something? The Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune, today on the world's only rock and roll talk show. Jim and I are going to interview one of the great singer-songwriters of our time, Tori Amos. Plus, we'll review the new album from the hip-hop supergroup, the Wu-Tang Clan, and the new solo record from Wu-Tang's Ghostface Killer. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. Greg, week after week on Sound Opinions in the News segment, we have been covering what is nothing less than a war between the recording industry and its own customers. Now, in Oregon, there's a really interesting story that I'm shocked hasn't gotten more attention outside the state. The University of Oregon was approached in August with uh, 17 of these lawsuit-threatening letters for its students. The university took a stand and said, no, we're not going to say who the students are behind those IP addresses. It's a state school, Greg. So their attorney winds up being the Oregon attorney. Attorney General Hardy Myers, who uh, decided to defend the privacy of these students along with university officials. Last week, he took the battle up a whole new notch. Hardy is my new hero, I'm telling you. (laughs) He's asking now that there be an investigation in turn of the RIAA, saying that they are doing, well, exactly what we've been charging them with doing, bullying people into submission, shaking them down for uh, settlement money. It's really a fascinating story. It's interesting that it hasn't gotten more attention across the country. I think that's going to change. We wanted to go to one of the men who's been covering it, Tony Green at the Oregonian in Portland. Welcome to Sound Opinions, Tony. Thanks. Nice, Nice to be here. So this is a fascinating story to Greg and I because we have been covering the 10 waves of lawsuits that the Recording Industry Association of America has filed against college students from coast to coast. It's been very rare that the college, when it gets this uh, litigation letter from the RIAA, doesn't pass it along to its students. Oregon's taken a a firm stand on that. Yeah, I mean, initially they protested on the grounds that to turn over this information would violate federal privacy laws that protect students but they've taken it a step further uh, recently by really attacking the entire legal strategy of the recording industry. They've focused on a couple things. One is that they claim that the recording industry really has no evidence of any illegal downloading, simply evidence that these students had copyrighted songs, but that isn't proof that or even necessarily any indication that they uh, make illegal copies of it. So they might have just downloaded a song from a CD that they purchased. Correct. Or they might have taken it out of iTunes. Mm-hmm. And they've also, so they've really questioned the whole premise of the litigation. If, if all the, the recording industry has is evidence that a person has uh, copyrighted songs, well, most everybody has copyrighted songs on their computers. The second step, though, they, they have really attacked sort of the whole sort of what they describe as kind of a bullying strategy of identifying alleged copyright infringers sending them a note from a collection agency saying, pay $3,000 or we will you know, sue you, and then really sort of relentlessly pursuing that. 
so that when you're initially targeted, you have really no choice but to pay up because it's just you can't afford to fight it. Well, Greg, uh, Cott and I, as music critics, we have a little bit more freedom to, to give our opinion. We've basically compared this to like a Sopranos-like move on the part of the recording industry. You know, like, we're shaking you down. Pay us or we're going to break your knees. <laughs> you're a reporter. I don't want you to be, be in there. But that sounds what, like what the Oregon AG is saying. I think that's. I don't think that's incorrect. I mean, I think at one point they were, there's an Oregon case against a woman, a woman named Tanya Anderson, a Beaverton, Oregon woman, suburban Portland, who was sued by the RIAA in 2005. And the evidence strongly suggests that they simply got the wrong person, mm. but they pursued her aggressively for about two years, finally dropping their case earlier this year. She's countersued and trying to make a national class action out of it. And the University of Oregon officials talked about this case and at mm-hmm. one point described it, the strategy that the recording industry used against her as chilling. It's interesting, Tony. It's chilling in a number of levels because what's happening throughout the United States is that the RIAA has basically enlisted these institutions of higher learning to do its dirty work for them, and most of them have complied very willingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we covered this story about the government of France stepping in and helping the recording industry do its dirty work by forming this police watchdog committee to basically shut down the internet access to people who have copyright violation files on their hard drive. So next logical step, it seems to me, in the United States is, well, what happens if the government gets involved in in basically doing what a private industry you know, says, my business is failing. I want the universities of America to step in and help me, and then next, the federal government to step in and help me and get my business back in order. It seems to me that's what's happening here. You know, I'm a little less clear on sort of the bigger picture strategy, but I do think that the the Tanya Anderson case does appear to be an example of a strategy that really isn't as careful as perhaps it could be when it comes to picking people, targeting people. And it does, you know, one of the things the the, uh, University of Oregon case brought up, which I think is a pretty interesting question, which is, does the mere presence of copyrighted files or uh, songs on your computer, is that evidence that you've obtained them illegally? And the recording industry makes the argument that by having them in one of these shared files, you are making them available for copyright infringement. Right. But, you know, I don't know that that is clearly necessarily the correct legal principle here. And, of course, if the recording industry were to lose that legal argument, it seems to me they would, this litigation would be in deep trouble because if you have to actually show that the person copied it, even to get in the door of the courthouse, I don't know how they're going to be able to do that. Yeah. Well, that was the turning point in the Jamie Thomas trial in Minnesota where they didn't have to prove Right. that anybody actually copied those files that she made available on her hard drive. But it's interesting to me that the University of Oregon is is one of the few institutions in the country that has taken this stand. Have you got any sense of how the recording industry is reacting to what the university has done? I mean, all I really know about what the recording industry is doing, I mean, I've, I've talked to them, but I think they're aggressively contesting everything that the university is doing. And you know, they're, they're sort of slinging names at each other. They're, they're accusing the university of harboring uh, lawbreakers, and the university is sort of calling them, you know, legal bullies. But this is being fought on the university's home court. It's a federal court in Eugene where the University of Oregon is, and those kind of things can make a difference sometimes. The judge knows the lawyers who are uh, representing the university. He doesn't know the lawyers who are representing the uh, recording industry. So I'll be interested to see how they sort of, how it plays out in that respect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Well, we've been talking to Tony Green of the uh, Oregonian. Thank you so much, Tony. We may have to check in with you again as this thing unfolds. Nice talking to you. I've been awake for a while now. You got me feeling like a child now. Cause every time I see a bubbly face, I get the tingles in a silly place. It starts in my toes and I crinkle my nose. Wherever it goes, I always know. Greg, that is a little bit of Bubbly by Colby Kaye, who we've successfully avoided playing on this show, despite her being a huge pop phenomenon. I would have liked to have kept it that way, but she's in the news. She had to recently come down on some of the fan sites that have sprung up devoted to her, saying, you have to take my songs off your sites. She's had to take full songs off of her MySpace page and replace them with little snippets of the tunes because her record company, Universal Music Group, has come down. It actually came down six months ago on all the artists signed to its many affiliated labels saying, you know, you can't post whole songs on the web and you can't let fan clubs do it. And now they're finally starting to enforce that, uh, coming down on their artists, not wanting them to use MySpace, which is, you know, ironic because Kobe Kaye is one of many artists whose entire career has been generated in the last year or two from MySpace. Yeah. I wonder what Lily Allen would say if she was only allowed to play snippets of her song on MySpace. You know, would that abate? I mean, that to me is ridiculous. And an indication, another indication of why the music industry is in the trouble it's in. We've got word of more layoffs. Ten staffers at Def Jam are being cut just this week. 40 to 70 mid-level executives are being cut at Sony BMG before the end of the year. Revenues are down 10% there in the second quarter alone. You know, it, it's interesting what the music industry is doing in response to this crisis. They're cutting back they're playing on games. the amount of music that they're <laughs> allowing people to hear. And meanwhile, Universal Music Group, which is the big heavy of the major labels, its parent company, Vivendi, is going into the gaming industry in a big way. It is acquiring... Activision, the big rival to electronic arts in the gaming industry, Activision specializes in making games for consoles, including Guitar Hero, which we talked about on this show a few weeks ago. And then we have Vivendi, which has been uh, big into online games, merging with this company, Activision, to create a huge rival to electronic arts, which has been leading the gaming industry in recent years. In contrast to what's going on in the music industry, Jim, the gaming industry is exploding. Activision is the biggest seller in the business, $1.5 billion in 2007, up 74% from 2003. Contrast that to the 25% decline in the recording industry during that time. So this is where the music industry uh, seems to be gravitating toward, the gaming industry. That is the growth area. And meanwhile, its music sales continue to tank. Tell me that you need me, then you go and cut me down. That is a song called Apologize from a band named One Republic. It can be found on the new Timbaland album called Shock Value. Why are we playing it? Yes, why are we playing it? We apologize for playing Apologize. That is the most played song in America. In fact, it is setting historic levels of radio airplay. In the last week, it was played nearly 11,000 times, reaching more than 70 million listeners. One station alone in Philadelphia played it 123 times last week. I mean, you can hear this song twice an hour 
in Philadelphia, if you're listening to the right stage. It's unbelievable. What we are tracing here is a new phenomenon. It's not so new. It's just become more exacerbated in recent months, in recent years. Commercial music radio responding to the threat of the Internet, taking away its business. Radio listenership is down. It, con- it has continued to decline for the last decade. Why? People are gravitating towards video games. They're gravitating towards the Internet. They're doing everything but tuning in the radio more. How is radio responding? Instead of playing more music over more formats, over more genres, they are playing fewer and fewer songs. In other words, heavy repetition of songs that they feel their listeners want to hear the most. And this One Republic song, Apologize, is the latest and worst example of this phenomenon. It was reported on in a recent New York Times story by Jeff Leeds, who covers the music business and pop culture for the New York Times. And we have Jeff on the phone right now. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you. It it blew both of uh, our minds, Greg and I, when we were thinking about the ridiculous number of times this song Apologize and other tracks are getting played on radio. I mean, it it seems like this is – here's the best illustration you could possibly have for why people are abandoning FM radio. Uh, Well, you know, it's it's part of a a sort of interesting debate that's going on essentially, which is what is it that audiences really want and and how are sort of mass media going to adjust to a world where, you know, people have so many different – kind of niche options out there to to pick from. You know, it's interesting because the song that you focused on is this god-awful song from the uh, the Timbaland record. It's probably the weakest track on the record, but it is kind of a, your classic middle-of-the-road ballad. And one of the reasons you cite for programmers gravitating to a song like this is it's very inoffensive. There's nobody could possibly offend other than people who love music greatly. <laughs> and And at the same time, the decision to air it this many times in the face of the fact that there's more music out there than ever is an indication to me that the big corporations are saying, we're going to deal with this Internet issue by pounding repetitively the songs we really think our audience wants to hear, quote-unquote, as opposed to making any attempt to be more diverse and keep up with the wide volume of music that's out there. Right. It seems that at a time like this, they, you know, they certainly realize that there is you know, an attrition of listeners and that they are losing people um, gradually, not, not really rapidly, but gradually losing people to you know, some of these other options, be it you know, Internet radio or iPods in their cars or, or what have you. And so I think there's sort of a calculation to say, to, to ask sort of what they can do to kind of hold on to the turf that they've got, even though it's sort of gradually eroding. And, you know, what this, deter- what this sort of shows is that their determination is that they can continue to play these hits and play sort of what is familiar music. Because the strategy for, for terrestri- terrestrial radio has always sort of been to kind of keep people uh, from tuning out almost more so than it is to get them to tune in. The thing I don't understand, though, Jeff, is in an age where, you know, if you if you like a song at all, you know, you are 30 seconds away and, and almost no money, in many cases no money at all, from downloading that on your iPhone, your computer, your CD player, right? Why would you need to have... You say that the most played song of all time in the piece is 1.1 uh, 1. 1 million plays of Smooth, <laughs> Santana's song from 99. Right. It's like, you know, why, why would radio ever have to play it again? Everybody else owns it. Well, I think that their research, and we could have a whole discussion about the way uh, radio audience research works, their research tells them that, you know, people like to hear familiar songs. You know, the burnout on songs sometimes isn't as fast as, as you and I might think it is, but 
you know, the research tells them that, you know, these are the songs people like to hear, and they're not going to tune out if they hear what's familiar to them. So that's why, that's why tracks like Smooth and uh, Hanging by a Moment by Lifehouse is an you know, all-time leader. Tracks like that just, you know, are sort of evergreens for um, not just the, the pop format, but, but some of the other radio formats like Adult Contemporary and those, those other formats. But, but, Jeff, aren't the statistics, and they have been since the Telecommunications Act of 1996, aren't they pointing downward away from radio listenership? I mean, it seems to me like they would be wanting to combat it in a little bit more innovative way than playing fewer songs more times. Well, it's interesting you say that because they have made some efforts to compete online in certain ways. Um, so, for example, the big Clear Channel Top 40 stations, which you know, Clear Channel is particularly dominant in Top 40, have set up sort of social networks like MySpace kind of clones within the websites of those specific radio stations. So in New York on the, on the big station Z100, there's a kind of a special Z100 social network on the Z100 site. And here in L.A., there's a special social network for KISS FM, which is their pop station here. And so they do feel like, you know, they have a strong presence online. But the, the real trick is going to be whether the sort of programming philosophy of radio changes as we sort of move into this digital era where everybody has so many options. Because there, there are so many ways people can sort of customize their own uh, listening experience, right? You can sit in your car and program your iPod the way you want, or you could listen to um, an internet radio site like Pandora and sort of find stuff that you like and that's customized to you. And it's obviously very, very difficult for mass media outlets like broadcasters to figure out how to really adjust to that sort of world, to a world of, of narrow casting. Well, and of course, the advantage of, of those other options that you mentioned is that they don't come with 20 or 25 minutes out of every hour uh, devoted to advertising. That's right. Um, it's very. It's also very tricky for them to figure out a, a business model for that for that whole experience. But they are, you know, at the same time, they. I think they feel like they have a very powerful thing, and that they have a passive medium that, for better or worse, is gonna, you know, is gonna continue to attract a lot of people. It's easy. It's free, and it's sort of um, losing ground slowly. But I think they feel like, for the moment, the best strategy for them is to bang the hits, and hold on to as much of their audience as they can. Well, thank you, Jeff, for coming on Sound Opinions. Jeff Leeds, our colleague covering the culture and business of music for the New York Times in L.A. You bet. We welcome your feedback here on Sound Opinions. Give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800, or email interact at soundopinions.org. Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we'll sit down with singer-songwriter Tori Amos to talk about her decade-long career and her secret research on American women for her latest album, American Doll Posse.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. A few weeks ago, Tori Amos was in town, and Jim and I sat down and talked with her. Uh, We wanted to survey a career that is one of the most fascinating in popular music. It began in the late 80s in Los Angeles with a really abysmal project called Why Can't Tori Read? Sort of a uh, glam metal band was really inappropriate setting for Tori Amos, who's really an accomplished piano player. She started over again sat herself down at a piano, wrote some songs, came out with a galvanizing solo debut record called Little Earthquakes in 1991, has sold 20 million records since then, has become one of the great songwriting voices in the world, really. She has really galvanized an entire generation of women out there with her songwriting, as well as a generation of men who are paying attention to her worldview. It's really unique. I think there are a lot of women who have followed in her footsteps since and done similar work, but nobody can really beat the original. Tori Amos, uh, we were glad to sit down with her a few weeks ago when she stopped into the Jim and Kay Maybe studio for an interview. Welcome, Tori. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Hi, we, Jim. Hi, Greg. We were just reminiscing a couple minutes ago about the many times and the many incarnations we've seen you perform. I remember the first time I saw you was just you and the piano with E as the opening act I at the that. Park West. I think Little Earthquakes was not even out yet, or it was just about to come out, or it came out that week. And now here we are, nine studio albums later? I think you're right. And assorted B-side collections and so on and so on. Let's start by talking about this album, because uh, we reviewed it when it came out. It's an extraordinary record, American Doll Posse. Where did this concept of playing five radically different characters, each a part of the feminine mystique, the feminine personality of you, where did that whole notion come from? Well, I was on the last tour alone, again at the piano, not with the band for the first time in a while. And I was in shock at how the election turned out. So I started stalking American women without them knowing that I was doing it. <laughs> a good place, you know, you just hang out around coffee shops or Victoria's Secret, and you can find them easily. And I started to try and figure out how in the world could we as women have allowed this to happen, whether we were so distracted that we didn't vote or that we did and didn't realize, wait a minute, if I don't vote against the people that are still and now in power, then I'm really, what am I doing for the next generation of women? Mm -hmm. So that was really bothering me. What happened to us women? And I started to get fixated on image and how a lot of women choose an image and feel trapped in that image, mm-hmm. and it might not be who they are, the stereotype, I'm a career woman, right. I'm a mom. So I started to think about, well, let's go back to definitions of women pre-Christian when they were powerful and hot and all those things. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that explains in part a, a quote I'd seen from you about this album. You said, you know, personal is political, and you said you wanted to approach it from the other side, that the political is personal. So you were offended on the part of all women, and you think all women should have been offended by what happened politically in this country. Yes, I do. Mm. But as a woman, I'm offended by us women as well. (laughs) Yeah, and I love my fellow gals. So Mm -hmm. they know I've been fighting for them since, well, since I was two and a half as a minister's daughter, talking about Mary Magdalene. But 
they know this, but I still have to say it. And that's why with this record, when I picked up the tomahawk again, it found Mm -hmm. my hip. I knew (laughs) it was time. It was time to make this kind of music. Well, this is a very theatrical tour, Tori. Um, You've got these characters, Santa, Clyde, Pip, Isabel, and of course, Tori. Each night, a different character appears. Last night, it was Santa that came out there, and they have totally different personalities. Uh, Santa is this uh, vivacious, flamboyant, I would say a vixen might be a good word for her. And she came out there, and she kind of owned the first six, seven songs of that evening. And then you go back, and and then Tori comes out and does this show. But this theatricality element, I think it's always been a part of your music, role-playing, gender reversal, subverting stereotypes. It's always been there. And I'm thinking, is there a little bit of a glam rocker in you? Were you loving those New York dolls and Roxy Music and David Bowie records in yeah, the early... No, I was. <laughs> well, yeah, I was. But you have to think, when you're performing Little Earthquakes and you're opening up to the female singer-songwriter genre, glam rock and that, it's hard to bring that marriage together in that moment. So I had to kind of put that away in my closet for a while, <laughs> my my love of rubber tights. And so one day I thought it would come out again. But Freddie Mercury, how much do we love him, watching him perform? The possibilities of what some of these guys were doing with um, allowing themselves to be a canvas. Yeah. And then they're just a body and the songs enter them and they change into this thing. Mm -hmm. It seems to free up your songwriting too because I remember talking to you about um, uh, from the Choir Girl Hotel and I think, I I may have gotten this wrong, but you were talking about wearing different clothes for different songs. I mean, you had to almost get into the character of the person that you were singing about or singing through in that particular song. Scarlet's Walk, there's an alter ego there. And the Strange Little Girls record, obviously taking those male-written songs and sort of adopting them and then flipping it around. So it seems like this has always been... I mean, what does it do for you as a songwriter? Is it important for you to sort of get into these characters to sort of see the song through? Well, you can get trapped as a composer because no different than we've talked about definitions of, of women and their image. As a songwriter, people can only expect certain kinds of songs from you and a certain style from you. And sometimes you just feel, well, but I can write more than this genre. I love more than this genre. And I get to play with a drummer who is this generation's Bonham in my nuts. If I could write something and say to him, because we've always had this conversation, when you call Matt Chamberlain in as a drummer, which a lot of us do, Mm -hmm. he is there and he will tell you. He's there to support that singer-songwriter and they are the center. And I didn't want that. I said, you know, stop walking on eggshells. I want you to come in and unleash those drums and hear the songs and we arrange them ground up. So I had to have a chat with the singer-songwriter who is Tori and I and I had to say this is not your record anymore. <laughs> and she was okay. She said, yeah. "Can I just play with the guys?" And I said, "You can play with the guys." Yeah. But you need to practice. She yeah. said, "Yeah, okay." Hey. 
got away from the piano for a bit, didn't you? Around the time, why can't Tori read? I mean, didn't you sort of leave that behind a little bit at that point and then come back to it only, only a couple of years later? I think what happened was I had been turning in all my demos that I had produced, and I'd been producing these things for over seven years. So I'd been in the clubs for seven years, mm-hmm. and I had my little Porta studio and doing all that with my synth and my piano as well. And um, I kept getting rejection letters from everybody. I mean, everybody. It's funny because I even am on a label that's associated with one of the people that gave me my worst rejection letter, (laughs) who was Clive Davis. But it's kind of funny now. And so Jason Flum came down to see me playing in a little club in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. And he would say to me, honey. I love what you do, but this girl and piano thing this is never going to happen. <laughs> okay, this died. Yeah, but think about it. Tori, Tori Amos comes out in the early 90s, the girl at the piano thing, as you were saying, and you were writing these really naked songs. I mean, just like, it was just flat out. And th- here's grunge taking over the world. And then you've got me and a gun a cappella. You talking to God, saying, hey, you know, uh, you, you need a good woman to take care of you. God, sometimes you just don't come But sometimes you just don't come through Do you need a woman to look after you? God, sometimes you just don't come through It shouldn't have worked. There was no, no industry trend that you were writing at that point other than just being yourself. And yet you were doing this amazing music at the time. What was going on in your mind that made you feel, I, I've just got to do this no matter what. I mean, you just said these industry pressures were weighing on you with Why Can't Tori Read. What flipped the switch for you to just come completely in the opposite direction? I remember sitting in a restaurant in West L.A., and I had just played at the airport Marriott that night <laughs> that I did six times a week. And I'd already made Why Can't Tori Read in it was over. But I was sitting in this restaurant alone, and I heard these people talking, and they were talking about me. And the guy sounded like he had been drinking a little. He got a little loud, and he was explaining to this woman um, that, do you see that girl over there? She's the laughing stock of the industry this week. And I put down my fork, and the five-year-old in me that had been the youngest person ever accepted at the Peabody Conservatory Hmm. just said, enough. Enough. This will never happen again. We will wake up with our dignity. And if we have to play at the airport, Marriott, till we're, you know, a grandmother and have our dignity as a composer, then we will. Mm-hmm. So and, it was okay if you were going to play the Marriott, but you are going to play your own songs from that point. Yeah. So I, I happened to call a friend because I was wrecked. I was, you know, beside myself that night. Um, and she said, you know, come on over. And uh, she had a piano in her apartment. And she said, why don't you just play something for me? I'm just going to chill out. And so I sat down because I didn't have a piano in my little apartment. And so I started to play. 
And I can't remember how long. It could have been a couple hours. And she looked up at me and she said, you know, this is what you have to do. Because this is what you do. And so I rented a piano in the next week, and that was the beginning, and I started writing Little Earthquakes. So Not For Nothing was that album cover when it finally came out of Little Earthquake showing you trying to break out of a box or bristling at being hemmed in by these four walls. You'd already, you'd already had more than many people's careers worth of, uh, <laughs> of trying to get defined and hemmed in. I had to fight for that record to stay intact. But if I hadn't been through what I'd gone through before, I don't think I would have had the tenacity mm. and the strength to fight because I was going up against some pretty amazing people. I mean, Arif Martin, bless him, because he is a genius and was a genius, but he was one of the ones that said, take all the pianos off and put guitars on. And then years and years and years later, he was able to produce a very successful young woman who plays the piano and sold millions and millions of records. (laughs) So (laughs) at the time, though, it was not... Yeah. Did it give you any more license later on with the subsequent records? Did it make it any easier, or was every record a battle? Because every record has been different. I would say to you every record's been a battle because every time I turned in a record, the label wanted me to make the last record. Mm -hmm. And if you turn in the last record, well, it's already been done. It's over. To to create something somewhat different so that people are thinking, then it has to be new to them. But they're they're back on the last record. Well, they're good at selling widgets. This whole industry, you know, <laughs> they want to they want to know what it is. It fits in a nice little package. And you're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim Deergatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we are talking to Tori Amos. Let's talk about your uh, partner on this record and your partner in life, Mark. Your husband is Mark Aladdin, who produces record an extraordinary production. I mean, it's great sounding. Record. Yes. What was that like? Working with him and making the record in the studio, you talked a little bit about having you know incredible heavy drum sound, and it's it. I mean, it, it's great to hear you behind those Zeppelin esque drums. Well, he was a punk guitar player, and his playing name is Mac Aladdin, and his engineering name is Mark Hawley, and we protected him for years about who was doing it because he said to me, "You have the Dead Beatles story." He just said, "You know." I don't want to be the spouse of trying to wedge my way on. That's not my thing. But I'd played with other guitar players. And, you know, we had Robbie McIntosh come in and play on Scarlet's Walk. So when we had, quote, unquote, Mac Aladdin play too, it was – I was working with a lot of different players at the time. So it was kind of a natural step 
that when I these songs started coming for this record, yes, I went to him first, and I said, I think I'm in over my head, because I know this just doesn't work on the piano unless it's it's part of a band. It's got to be there. And so he would help me demo up and come up with some of the riffs. And so when the guys walked in, they had a sense of where it could go. Rhythmically, it's, it's a really powerful record. I, I think Jim and I both commented on it when we reviewed it. It is the earthiest record. Your bare toes are digging into the dirt on this record. It, it really has that groove. Did you want to just get heavy? Did you want to get that Led Zeppelin thing going on this record more so than ever before? Or was that just something that ended up happening? Or was that there when you wrote those songs? I think it's a mixture of all this, Greg, because live I've been playing with, with Matt and John for years. But something happened. Maybe it was the response to where things were in the world so that the material had this kind of rawness and urgency, a quality, an ingredient, that I could push it to that place. And when the songs were coming in, I knew that there were different voices here, and I was either making one record with many voices or I was making many records. Because mm. <laughs> you all would think of it just cracked. Yeah, yeah. What is she doing? And at the time looking at the women in America, seeing these, how they were compartmentalizing themselves. And I thought, you have to fight ideology with ideology. Mm -hmm. And what's the one thing that they love? Well, the male authority God figure. And what's the thing they hate? Well, the female authority God figure. Right. So I thought, well, let's bring loads of those on then. <laughs> Drawing on, on Greek archetypes. But I suppose one of the, the ultimate ironies of this record is you, you have a, um, a radio hit of, of sorts again with, with Big Wheel. It's gotten a fair amount of commercial airplay despite the MILF chant or maybe because of it. <laughs> Isn't it crazy that things can get played on the radio M-I-L-F, they're letters, right? But it seemed to really get people. You can call somebody um, a B-I-T-C-H. You can say um, man-eater, which is incredibly graphic, and we can be very graphic on the radio. But you say M-I-L-F, forget it. Mm. Yeah. Well, you're a Madonna or whore. You're not supposed to mix the two. That's right. you think when you see somebody like Britney Spears making an album that's like beginning to end sex? Well, I just wish you could perform it. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, the way Without I... Without the auto-tuning? Well, the way I look at it is if that's your art, then 
don't embarrass yourself, practice, train, and go perform it. Well, and the thing about Britney, she's like one, you could probably play Britney really well. You could probably make a great Britney record. Um, there's like, but there's 25 different personalities in your in your songs. And I remember we, we were talking about this 10 years ago, and the quote I pulled was, I'm on a quest for wholeness. That the way women are perceived, this gets back to where we were talking about earlier, it's, it, they got to be these, this one thing. Why can't they be all these things? Greg, it sounds like you're daring me to make a Britney record, and I might I just have could, to take him up on it. I, was, I, was I think loving you could that do concept. it. I, I think you could it. do it. And I, I think, can, can you imagine with a real singer on that record? Because I, I love that record, actually. Well, I think the production it's a really is, well done is extraordinary, yeah. But, but she the did, lyrics are just... Why is she on there? That's what I'm wondering. But look at this record. You compare what's going out there in the, in the pop marketplace today, and we've got here what, what is essentially... I think you pulled the wool over the record company's eyes because you succeeded in making a double, a double album. There's four album sides here, Jim. Have you noticed that? Oh, all yeah. Say. There's five voices on this record. I mean, these are the kind of records, I hate to say this and sound like a stodgy old curmudgeon, but uh, in the era of MP3s, people aren't going to be allowed to make records like this anymore in the, in the traditional record industry. No, it deserves a quintuple gatefold yeah. sleeve, <laughs> you know? But what do you, what do you think about all that? I mean, given what Radiohead has just done, where do you see your place fitting in in the, in the next 10 years in terms of how you want to get your music out, the ambitions that you have for your music? Well, that's a really good question because I think things are going to change drastically in the next two years. I'm not going to make another record for a couple of years because I've signed on with the British National Theater to compose a musical. Wow. And I want to do it while my mom's still alive mm-hmm. because she's always asked me to do this. She would take me to musicals when I was a little girl. Mm-hmm. And my little girl is seven. And the dream is that my mom and my little girl sit there together. On opening night. On opening night. Mm-hmm. That's while my mom is still alive. So in a way, you guys, it's kind of perfect timing because when you ask me this, I have a hunch where it's going. I think what Radiohead is doing is intelligent, but they are Radiohead. Not everybody can do that and have the success. But I think some of us could do something similar, and I think there are some of us that don't win by having a major. So I do think it's going to change. It is changing, and, um, you know, it has crossed my mind when you – bring up Mark. We've talked about we have the state-of-the-art studio. We could mix, master, and upload to the world. Mm -hmm. Sure. It is possible. And what I'm kind of happy about is I'm going to make a musical and watch watch what happens (laughs) before I pick up my pen. Now, Tori, there are a few artists who would think of as as ambitious and absurd in some ways, uh, an undertaking of as put, writing a musical as as like a good way to lay low for a while. <laughs> but still, I mean, look at the shoes that, that you're up against. You know, there's a lot of really bad musicals, yes. especially coming from rock people. Thank you, Jim. And a, and a <laughs> no, handful, you're right. And a handful of very good ones. Right? My chances are not great. I do understand this. I'm really against against all odds here, <laughs> me and Phil. No, I know. I realize that. Um, we could all maybe just sheepishly look at each other in two years and, and say, let's not talk about that musical. Let's talk about my, my Britney record. <laughs> We're going to let you go, Tori. It's been a pleasure. We could talk to you for hours, as well, always. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you for coming by to Sound Opinions. 
You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're going to be back in a minute with a review of the much-anticipated new Wu-Tang Clan album and some thoughts about Ghostface Killer's record as well. One Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a track called Take It Back, second song on the fifth studio album from the Wu-Tang Clan, Eight Diagrams. Just came out, Greg, I think it's safe to say one of the most anticipated hip-hop releases of the year. These guys are superstars. They haven't released an album since 2001's Iron Flag. Never formally broke up, but have all been concentrating, the eight surviving members, on their various solo careers. In fact, they're best known, I think, in the hip-hop world for pioneering this concept of you have a group, a super group, and then everybody goes off and makes their own albums, and you know you, you triple the amount of merchandise yeah. you can put out there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's you know spreading yourself out. Wu-Tang Clan came together in the late 80s on the bucolic borough of Staten Island, New York. These guys specialized in rapping about hardcore drug tales, uh, drug dealing on the streets, mixed with this kind of fantasy element of of kung fu imagery and movies mm-hmm. and chess, of all things. They are all devoted to playing chess, or, or at least the key members. Robert Diggs, who is the producer, a.k.a. RZA, and uh, his cousins, Russell Jones, uh, affectionately known as Old Dirty Bastard, <laughs> and uh, Gary Grice, the Jizza. Those were the main guys. Got a bunch of their friends together. It was a total of nine Wu-Tangs altogether. ODB is no longer with us. Died of a drug overdose. And uh, the eight survivors got together to make eight diagrams. Let's play a track from this song. I think it's kind of uh, the one that's getting the most attention because it was erroneously reported that this was a Beatles sample, rarely sanctioned. Uh, The Beatles never say okay to sampling. It's not. It's a cover of While My Guitar Gently Weeps. But the song is also interesting because it's got two uh, cameos on there. Erica Badu is on this track and John Frusciante of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So here it is, The Heart Gently Weeps on Sound of Tank it fell when they stuck. They shot a cousin, Levon, Neo the Buck. Willie was awful, pulled out the 
have led all to. Grits fell on his leg. Kiana ripped him cold, booey, valent. A uh, Allen with the talent of six killers who just came home from straight wildin'. Robbing everything in Macy's. Lacy, short haircut with long arms and f- He's got four babies, Yvette jabbed her, slapped the wig off, ran in the crib, she did the dumb, my n- they clapped the Lester, smoked Chester's sister, Vessa, heard it was a mess, they ripped the apple out of throw Blester, hungry hyenas from Medina, all eight trainers, who goggle up, we yeah. fast and blast for bangers. Out the path mark, she's pushing the cart, headed to Al Ford. Damn, I got milk on my clocks. That's what I get. Not focusing from hitting that bump. My mouth dry, need plenty water quick. I feel like a shark in the Al busting them paper towels and wiping my wallies down. I stood up to face a barrel. He's holding the shiny on his him. He want revenge. I murdered his uncle Tim. I sold him a bag of. His wife came and copped again. That is The Heart Gently Weeps, a track from the new Wu-Tang Clan record, Eight Diagrams. Jim, it's hard to overestimate how important this group is in hip-hop history with its debut album only. If it had just come out with Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers, in 1993, its place in hip-hop history would have been assured. Absolutely. The RZA's sound as a producer was revolutionary at the time. That eerie, soundscape type of sound that he was creating... It was, it was taking that public enemy density, that layered, heavily layered production, and giving it this kind of opium den, shadowy vibe, uh, mixing it in with these sci-fi samples, these, these martial arts samples, giving it sort of a sci-fi psychedelic effect, mixed in with, as you said, the cryptic lyricism of these guys. Yeah. They, they were talking about the streets but in such cryptic fashion that they seem to be almost like philosopher assassins, these hooded philosopher assassins (laughs) coming out of Staten Island, and you go, what is this? Well, their music was memorably paired with that that movie about a philosopher assassin ghost dog. Exactly, and they have become a cottage industry. These guys are venturing off on their little solo projects. Ghostface Killa is arguably the single most influential member of that very formidable posse of MCs in this group. Initially, it was ODB and Method Man who were getting all the attention. But since then, Ghostface has risen to a place of prominence. And he's barely on this record. He's on three tracks. So it's interesting that... uh, their best MC is really not participating in this record. Well, that's because he has his own album out. He yeah. has his own record out his called uh, The Big Doe Rehab, which Big is Doe, his, yeah. his third, third record in 19 months. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, Jim, when I talk about uh, you know overkill, there's too much Wu-Tang maybe on the market. These guys are way more interested in their solo projects than they are in the Wu-Tang Clan itself. And as a result, each Wu-Tang Clan album has been a case of diminishing returns. It is very much a RZA record. He is first among equals. His sound is still fantastic, but this album really really drags to a close. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's it's a letdown. But then so was Iron Flags. I mean, they've been scattered and the talent's pulled in too many directions for too long. I interviewed Gary Grice, Jizza, in, in August. And uh, at that point, the record was about three-fifths done. And uh, I asked him what it sounded like. He said he had no idea. He hadn't actually <laughs> ever been to the studio. He'd been emailing some verses in. And, and he didn't think that anybody had actually been in the studio except Rizza. These guys were all basic, you know, literally phoning in their parts. That's a bad sign. You can hear that. They all would have benefited if they concentrated on it as a group effort. Although musically, you know, there's some really interesting stuff. Ghostface and Raekwon have been calling it a, a lousy album. They've been dissing it even before 
before its release saying that, that RZA went to become a hip-hop hippie, yeah. which confuses me because there was always this kind of lazy psychedelic vibe to Wu-Tang, as you've said. And to me, it continues here for sure. The only thing that's upped is the guitar. There's yeah. more guitar work, but it's played by that psychedelic freak, John Frusciante, mm-hmm. you know, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So it's cool. I mean, you know, musically, I think this is a great backdrop. I, I don't mind the guitar on this record. I think RZA is the one guy who is still invested in this group yeah. and trying to do great work. I'm not sure anybody else is. You know, Ghostface, after he had that Fish Scale record, which we all loved last year, yeah. has put out two very middling records. The Big Doe Rehab is kind of the Fish Scale Part 3, and it's not nearly as good. i got to say, the one thing that the, the Ghostface Killer record is lacking is the inventive production that RZA might have brought to that kind of project. What really needs to happen, Jim, is the Ghostface and RZA need to bring their talents together. Clearly, yeah. they are the kingpins in the Wu-Tang Empire right now, and they are not working together. So as a result... Eight Diagrams, the Wu-Tang Clan record. There's a few good tracks on there. I say burn it to that one. The Ghostface Killer record, the Big Doe Rehab, a big, big letdown. I say it's a trash it. Well, I hate to say it, but I agree with you 100%. Burn the Wu-Tang record, trash the Ghostface. Jim, it's rare to see us agreeing on two records. Uh, next week, we'll see how we do, because this is the show of the year, as far as I'm concerned. I know we you're pretty excited yeah. about it, too. <laughs> Our best of 2007. We lay it on the line. Here are the best records of 2007. We're going to tell you what they are next week. Greg, we have some thank yous, as always. Tori Amos was recorded by Mary Gaffney and Sarah Toulouse. We got some interning help from Dave Mahler. The Ace Sound Opinions production team is Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. And, of course, our fearless leader, Southside, Tori Malatia, man, we like to call M.A. for middle-aged D.B. Yes, it's your friendly phone fanatic again. Oh, yeah, I'm loaded with verbal rap ability, baby. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic, so give us a call on our hotline. 1-888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Carla calling from Brooklyn, New York. And I finally had to call in and just tell you that I love the show. Basically, I listen to two episodes a day, five days a week, and I've been doing that for about a month. So I think you're just going to have to start taping episodes faster because I'm running out of archives. And I don't think I could stand going back to being grumpy during my really long commute. And I also really like listening to guests giggle at what nerds you guys are. Um, But that's why I love listening, just like sitting around with friends, talking trash and listening to records and falling in love with something new. And the Buried Treasures episode was really perfect in that way, just getting to hear Betty LeVette in the 1900s and David Yao from the Jesus Lizard really singing. He can sing like a sweet little choir boy. Who knew? totally amazing so thanks again guys hi this is patrick foy from omaha nebraska i listened to your guys's hidden treasures episode and i just heard the song bullets and immediately went out on my lunch break and purchased this album and listened to it for the rest of the day. We're cashing bullets in our teeth, and though they try hard not to say how it's done. You guys 
You said this is something everyone should purchase? I'm shocked by this. I mean, Bullets is a great song, no question. But it's followed immediately afterwards with a song called Soup, which is, in I am not exaggerating it in way, shape, or form, 45 seconds looped of techno synth that sounds like it came out of some sort of horror Christmas movie. And then immediately, everyone in the band just yells, Soup! And then they repeat that. That's a four-minute song right there. There's maybe five good songs on here altogether. This is a burnin' album at best. How on earth could you claim that this is an album that people should go out and buy? It's just horrifying. This is Jack from Traverse City, Michigan. Um, I'm just calling because I got a bone to pick with Greg about his comment about against me being shopping mall punks. Um, I've been a big Against Me fan for four years now, and I just got back from seeing them. I actually listened to the podcast of the show on the way to see them. I love the new album, but I don't really think of it as a punk album. I just think it's a really great rock album. They've always been a really great live act, and I wasn't sure how the new songs were really going to work live, but um, I thought they were even better live than on the record, and it's made me appreciate the record even more now, I think. So, Greg, my suggestion for you is to go see Against Me Live. I think it might change your opinion about them. That's all I got. Love the show. Thanks, guys. Jim, Greg, this is Owen from Chicago. First time calling you guys up. You guys talk a lot about the music industry and how downloading will affect that. I say the easier it is for people to buy music, the better it will be eventually. It is just starting to snow. I am in my bathrobe and slippers. I am definitely not going outside until I absolutely have to. But if I would like to fill out my collection of Y or Buck 65 or any of the other guys I'd love to hear you guys talk about, I can do that from my computer. That is a great thing for the music industry once they get a better handle on how to make me pay for it, which I do sometimes. Have a beautiful day. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.